This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the Yamalka edition. I'm Avi Fangold in Montreal. I'm here with Davis Klar in Calgary. Alana Zakon is off this week. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about Hasidic schooling in Canada. Is it similar to what the New York Times reported on this week? I also sit down with Jake Cohen, chef and cookbook writer, about holiday meals. But first, David, what's on your mind? Well, I am about to get on a jet plane or some kind of plane and fly to Montreal this afternoon. So, so that's what I'm excited about right now, Avi. Maybe there are drinks in our future tonight, tomorrow evening. I don't know. Come for a drink after Shabbos dinner. I don't know. Something. Thank you. I'll, I'll, well, I'll message out. you and see what's, what's happening. So the queen died. What was your, what was your relationship with the monarchy? I mean, just, what is? just like most people my age, I think it probably fits somewhere to ambivalence where we grew up with the queen. We grew up with the monarchy. Did we ever take it very seriously? No, I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm not someone who was going around all of social media saying we need to replace the monarchy. We need to get rid of the Commonwealth. I actually, I think I appreciate the Commonwealth. I don't want to turn into an American style republic um, to our neighbors to the south. But I think it's sort of like, well, what does, uh, what does the monarchy really give us in Canada? And are we, I think we're having more of these conversations of do we need to move away from the monarchy? Do we need to evolve our country in some ways? I don't think about it as much in terms of politics, because I think that we all know that they are figureheads and they are they do not serve um, in terms of, for all intents and purposes, any real functional uh, importance in terms of our uh, commonwealth or any others. Um, you know, so so I'm going to bracket that. And I think that most people just see them as celebrities. I, I don't really have a connection. I don't see many people who see them uh, other than these beautiful people who sit on podiums and wear crowns and do their thing. And we get to know all the details of their life. Um, and they carrying on this tradition. And they're incredibly wealthy. But at the end of the day, like, it's not like they really do anything. Um, even the governor general, who is the, you know, the, the the crown's representative in Canada um, doesn't really have, you know, any function that has teeth, right? It's important. It's a nice figurehead, but yeah, yeah right? Except, and, except when it you does, know, I think, it does have teeth. And I know that there's a bill trying to be passed in Alberta called the Sovereignty Act. If, if a certain person gets elected to the premiership and the lieutenant governor sort of said, I have to review this uh, because it may be unconstitutional. So there are these moments where these figureheads do come into play in our country and our province. Sure, fine, I'll, I'll take that. But I, I think at this point, the monarchy is basically celebrity and uh, prettiness, and they are blank slates. This is why, you know, it was Harry and Meghan. I'm not a big follower of all these details, right? They were the ones that were doing all the tell-all interviews for like two years, right? This is what made it so scandalous is that usually the monarchy does not speak in these ways. Right. That is the whole purpose almost is to be as bland as possible. I, remember, I got an email last weekend um, 
that was forwarded from somebody else, from somebody else. It was from some Chabad somewhere in the U.S. Um, was the Queen Chabad, right? And then it went on to talk about how the Queen never really showed any serious emotion. And this is one of the hallmarks of Chabad philosophy is to um, be in control of your emotions and not necessarily um, let them control you. And the Queen is clearly not Chabad, but she really shows these emotions, right? Uh, Did not show her emotions in this way. And so she really represented the the, the model of Chabad emotional uh, mastery. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but the whole point is that they are all these blank slates, that we can project whatever we want onto the monarchy. Monarchy. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I long live the king, may he long, be good for the Jews. Yes, long live the king. And um, right after our sponsor, let's go to our discussion about Hasidic schools in Canada. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. When the New York Times published an expose on the significant issues in Hasidic schooling in the New York State uh, this past week, it came as no surprise to many in the Jewish community. For one, they had been reporting the story for over a year. Many knew about it. They had also been circulating summaries to some of the schools in question in recent weeks, hoping for comment, and news leaked that the story was imminent. But more importantly, this wasn't really news to anyone involved in the Jewish community. Any current or ex-Hasid will gladly talk about the school system, either out of pride for their excellence in Jewish studies and Jewish values education, or out of frustration that their lackluster secular programs are talked about but never remedied. As Canadians, we also know about it because for eight years, media have been reporting on a case where the Quebec government was being sued for inadequate secular studies in Hasidic schools despite funding and oversight by the education ministry. With us to talk about this story and how Canadian Hasidic schools fit into the picture is Shane Dussault-Ovadia, who is a teacher and principal's assistant at Yeshivas Torres Moshe in Montreal, and Shifra and Yochanan Lowen, who were the plaintiffs in the case against the Quebec government. Shane Yochanan Shifra, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can we get started by um, asking that first question as to what is the relationship between what was uh, being alleged in the story and what we actually see in terms of what's going on in the Canadian environment? Are the schools that much different? Are they somewhat better? Is there different oversight because of the Canadian uh, system or the Quebec system being different? Uh, Yochanan Shifra, why don't you guys get started and then Shane, you can... uh, Add in some points after that. Um, there was zero secular education for many years since the since the government uh, started to uh, intervene through our case. They founded a new program. Uh, they call it a homeschool program, but it's only till the age of 12, 12, 13. But from the uh, bar mitzvah age, when they change from cheder to yeshiva, there is zero secular education. So it's still still a problem, but it's much better than uh, than it was before, where no child received uh, any education. Uh, and then um, it's not just in Kiryastosh, but uh, I think in all Hasidic boys' schools in Quebec, um, 
the 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 you have this uh, intervention and children are obligated to uh, children are getting uh, are getting educated yeah so until um until 2011 like in the early 2000s there was this big debate around illegal jewish schools in quebec and there wasn't always a distinction made between jewish schools hasidic schools and so on the quebec population doesn't know these kinds of differences so it became a big thing and it led it led to a lawsuit in 2011 against the school that i teach in uh, yeshiva torres moshe and the judge ruled basically the school was judged illegal because it looked like a school but it wasn't satisfying the expectations for for a licensed school so what's going on uh, the Quebec ended up losing the case against the school because the judge said that the responsibilities for secular education, as defined by the, the, the Education Act for the license, it goes only if you get a license. If you don't have a license, then you're just like a music school. A yeshiva is just like a music school. It's not considered legally responsible for teaching English. Now, they did say that there's currently no law on the books. So after that, it became more of a concern. Okay, how can we make this into a law? And it led to in 2017, uh, uh, partly in response to the Lowen lawsuit, it led to a new law that structured uh, secular education. So basically before, if you didn't send your, your child to school, you didn't even report it. You just could send them to the yeshiva. No one knows about it, nothing. There's, there was zero regulations, right? So that's what led to Yohanan Lowen's situation. Uh, they didn't even know how many children were in this situation. After 2017, though, the school boards and now the Ministry of Education are responsible. You need to report your child and you can get fines if you don't collaborate. Pretty big fines, up to like 20,000, I think. Um, and then the school boards are supervising uh, the development of children. And it doesn't have to be the same standard, but it has to show regular improvements eh, from year to year. Um, that's the basic idea. It's called Build Bill 144, uh, Bill Bill 144, um, and yeah. So now things have changed, and it's that's the gist of it. Johanan and Shifra, I'm I'm curious, what was your experience like grow, uh, growing up and attending this school? What were you feeling when you were there? Did you feel that you were missing something, or were you unaware at the time of what was happening? When did you start to sort of click in that maybe? there is something beyond the uh, what you are being taught? Uh, to tell the truth, I always felt imprisoned, but not just me. Uh, basically, all the children in Haider have this feeling. Uh, so, in one hand, they don't think that they are in a prison, like a jail, a prison. But in, the, uh, but, uh, in, the, the, in terminology, they don't think it as being a prison. But in the content of, in the essence, the definition of a prison, the, the, the children definitely feel that they, they don't have rights. They don't have human rights. And every, everyone uh, can do with them uh, whatever they want, especially parents and teachers and principals. And uh, they also felt that uh, the whole day in the, in the cheder is very boring. And no one likes cheder. No one. Even the best, uh, uh, I was the best student in class, right? Both in when I lived in London and here when I when I studied in Kiryas Tosh, uh, I, was, I was considered the best student. In Yeshiva, I was considered the best student and the most diligent. 
but um, but uh, I, I, I'm not gonna. But but I still had uh, a hell of a life. Uh, I had other, my hell was not just the the yeshiva. I had other hells at home, uh, but the yeshiva itself was also uh, not alive. And Shane, I'm curious, nowadays, do you see that same kind of feeling bubbling up with the students? And, and what's going on with the parents? Are they expressing those same concerns to you? Yeah, so I, I take exception to the generalization there. I mean, there's definitely a lot of issues, and uh, we, we know about this through the New York Times article, through different documentaries, and so on. Uh, when I first started going to the school, I had met uh, Johanan Loa, and I heard his story. I had read, read different reports, and I... You know, I thought I had some sense of what was going on, and I imagined it as a very sad place. I mean, you know, you hear this, you think that the children are all going to be, you know, unhappy to be there. And I didn't expect that the, in many ways, it's also a very joy. I mean, I compared to, say, my experience in a public school, I mean, yes, you have some children who are miserable there, who feel like it's a prison. I felt like it was a prison in my public school, too. And I remember looking at the bars on the windows. I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is a prison, you know, especially in my teenage years. Um, but I also see children who are very joyful. I've do, do, done some in-house tutoring uh, with uh, Satmar children. And they seem to, they find, they, they would, like one of them who's very smart would tell me, like, what we're learning here, it's just little stuff. It's kind of, it's boring. But with Torah stuff, you know, I could see the joy, you know, in his eyes. And the when people, when teachers speak, I mean, the people who stay in the community, like, you know, today someone was, uh, yesterday when someone was talking about something and everyone's very happy to talk about Torah. There, there is a lot of joy, I would say. Um, if, if someone leaves Quebec and goes to California as a teenager and they were very depressed when they were in Quebec, the way they might represent Quebec is this cold, isolated place. The children are put in this place with bars on the windows, you know, teachers don't know what they're doing. It's true, but it's also the bias of a, of an ex-member uh, to any community. Yeah. So then what, what happens with these students when they graduate? Are they able to land a job right away? Do they have a skill set preparing them for the, the, the modern real world outside? Or are they, as Yohanan mentioned, still feel a prisoner even once they leave this school slash prison? I, I get a sense that a lot of people want better English and better math skills so that then it's easier to transition to other things if they want to. Uh, they need a skill set that helps them for their community. That's the main you know, that's the main thing that they notice. And they are equipped, but life is expensive. Some of them want uh, other skill sets. But I, when I, you know, for example, when someone complains about the education, about English and math, uh, and then I say, yeah, and the science too, sometimes they might say, no, but the science, that's nonsense. We don't need this stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not so important. So y you get people who are critical of the system, but they're not criticizing the whole thing. They just want it to be reformed so that they're better equipped uh, for other things. Yohanan's critique is more fundamental, uh, is my impression. So one of the things, I mean, you point out, right, that everybody's proud of the Jewish studies curriculum. So I, you know, and I think Yohanan, you probably would admit, and I, I bet you Schiffer also would admit that the, um, they're not trying to be bad schools. They're just trying to be great schools when it comes to Talmud study or when it comes to Jewish studies and Jewish values. And everybody's talking about how um, they may at least be trying, right? Yohanan's shaking his head and saying that he doesn't agree. Maybe you can, I mean, 
I think that this is what they care about, and then there's things that they don't care about, and people are focusing on the things that they don't care about. Jochen, maybe you can tell us, um, you know, your experience, even from the Jewish perspectives uh, of, of things, uh, in terms of Jewish studies, um, but I want to I move into other things uh, in a moment after you, uh, you know, I have, a, I have another idea. Can I interject for one moment? Go ahead. Okay. Because I am in contact with a lot of Hasidic people, and I actually asked people who li- still live in the community how they received this article in the New York Times. And one of them pointed out how this was not stressed enough that the schools are a top-down mm-hmm. system, meaning the parents have no say. There is no consideration about the kids. There is a system in place. you got to follow everything. There's no um, autonomy at all. Sure. So that's actually where I wanted to to go with this, right? Because my first question here is, um, the New York Times says that this is by design, right? That there is a, uh, they don't want to do this. They don't want to have Jewish study, uh, secular studies. They want to only care about the things that they care about. They want to take the money from the government and not provide the services that they are uh, necessarily offering for it. And that there's something nefarious about all of this. There's something mean, there's something wrong about the way in which this is happening. Uh, I'm curious, how much of this do you think is by design um, and uh, in terms of like they're deliberately trying to trap the community? And how much of it is that the priority is A, and they what ends up happening is, well, it means that we don't have time for English and math, and then you end up stuck in the community because you can't get a job elsewhere, right? Where everybody talks about, oh, these people, they're entrepreneurs, and they have businesses, and they have jobs, but almost all of them are talking about jobs within the community where they can function with the limited skills that they were received and not necessarily to be able to go out of the world. So I believe it is by design. I mean, if you look at the whole picture... Kids are being married off at 18 before they even have a sense 16, of anything. Today. There's even families who marry off at 16. They don't, before they even have a sense of who they are and anything, knowing anything about the world. And this is by design because at the moment that you are married off in an arranged marriage, I should point out, the children are expected to start a family right away without having any uh knowing about their own human rights, about their own choices, and and, uh, uh, birth control is forbidden. So in other words, this is the best way to propagate their party because that's the only thing that these children are available for. They have no other avenues in life that they ever got a chance to explore, which means whether it's nefarious or not, what they do with the government money, I believe there is a lack of accountability. Like, Anybody in this world does whatever they can to make the best out of life. And if the funds are available and they have the ways to get it, the problem is not all about getting it. The problem is that it's available in such an unaccountable way. Mm -hmm. Shane, do you agree? Um, I mean, making it sound like a plan, I think there's a problem there because those family structures have been going on for a very long time, right? People getting married young. Uh, not using birth control. So back then, when you know, whenever this started, I mean, it goes back probably thousands of years that there's these family structures. The goal was not to uh, prevent people from leaving the community. It was just that's just what people did. So they, there's an aspect where they hold on to the tradition. Now it's true that there is a fight against the secular world, and there's an attempt to uh, differentiate themselves, and that exaggerates those things. So now that's where you're right, that there's an attempt to like, okay, what what can we do? But 
in the secular studies department, for example, the principal, who's Vijnit Satmar, he uh, has a master's in, in psychotherapy now. He's also a psychotherapist. And there's a genuine desire to improve results when it comes to English and math. And I should also say that it's very the financial aspect is very different in the U.S. Uh, I think Hasid communities in, the, in New York, because of the way just the government is set up there, are more adept at uh, you know getting uh, getting finance money from the government. Here, there's I think Tosh, Satmar, Xver, and um, uh, and Vizhnitz who do homeschooling. Uh, the other communities have these kind of probably subpar private schools. Bells, for example, has a French immersion school. And I speak to the teachers, they're French great, no, but they, they have a starting point, you know, and people want to learn, like people come to me and say, oh, would you want to be my French tutor? You know, people want to want to improve. They, they, it's not just a fight against the secular world. And I think for the Lowen family, you, you, you communicate a lot with people who are unhappy in that system and, and you're doing great work with these people um, and helping them show that there's other ways of living. But I wouldn't re use that to rep that sample to represent the entire community because I really see so much genuine joy also. In the community, Johanan, I, I saw. Well, I, I saw you sh shaking your head very, uh, very forcefully. Do you want to comment on that? What just what changes yes, said? Yes, because I do not only have um, connections with people who are unhappy. I actually know people who consider themselves happy in the community, and it's not that I have any um, work showing people that they have to leave. On on the contrary, very many people who contact me have a problem leaving because, as I pointed out before, they got married at eighteen. And now the threat is that they are going to lose contact with their kids if they leave. So their only choice is to stay if their partner does not want to leave. So for those people who are in the community and they do want a better life for their kids that, than they had, it's, it's, it's false to say that this is the tradition because our parents and our grandparents did not have this kind of poor education. So this is not true. And, they, did, and they didn't have these kind of restrictions they didn't have this kind of control. They, they never, there was never this kind of separation uh, that they do today. Between uh, boys and girls? Mm -hmm. The separation between boys and girls, but the, also the separation from the outside culture was never in that level. And today, what they do today, for example, in Satmar, they, they, they kick out the children, they, 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 they don't take in the children if the parents have a smartphone. And they, they created the card games the card mm -hmm. games that is uh, uh, called Kedusha cards uh, uh, or something like that. Holiness uh, cards, That yeah. talks about uh, modesty or talks about holiness. And on every card, it says, oh, if you have a smartphone, that means you uh, you are a monkey. You're going to become a heretic and you go to hell. Yeah. Oh. And, oh, thank you. And, and uh, Shane the, is showing us one of the Kedusha cards. These games, and, then, and then the children, when they see their, their parents having a smartphone or stuff like that, they tell on them, and that's why the parents are afraid, and that's, uh, and that's how they keep control. This never existed in Jewish history before. You mentioned a bit earlier, I just want to talk about the division between girls and boys, and I think I might know the answer to this question already, but what instruction are girls being given as they're growing up within this community, if, if anything? So basically, the only thing that they are taught, they're not even, like in Satmar and in Tosh, they're not even taught Torah, like they're not even allowed to open a, a, a Chumash or a, a Gemara, like this is forbidden. 
they're only allowed to learn like small verses here and there the only thing that they are taught is how to be a good housewife and a, and a pious mother to raise their children that's basically their future that's oh, the value of a, of a, of a i mean if they only learn that then why is it that i speak with a satmar mother and she speaks to me in good french in good english that she's able to, I, I said like, oh, we should do grammar. And she starts to talk to me about the history of the community, why they reject a, no, a, a focus on grammar. I mean, she, she definitely learned language skills, right? She didn't just learn how to be a good housewife. She has better language skills than her husband. So I'm going to yeah. explain that. But it's... So basically, the problem is that the boys learn nothing, so the women have to take care of everything. And if they don't have a good grammar, how are they going to talk to a doctor? How are they going to navigate uh, government documents if they have to fill out? Like, this is a, a necessity. That's why I'm explaining. Everything is with a goal and with the um, ideal that they put into the kids. This is your future. How much... Um... Shifra, how much do you think that the entire perspective would be shifted if um, choice was really something that was valued within the community? Meaning, this is, we are Hasidim, we have this lifestyle, we are very separate, and without any change by being the strictest of the strict, but anybody can join and anybody can leave, and we're not forcing anybody to do this. We're not forcing people, um, if you're in it, you marry at 18, and you have a lot of kids, and you do this, but at a certain point, when your bar mitzvah are beyond, everybody has the choice to do this or do something else. Would that change anything for you, just having that choice? So definitely choice is everything because that's what every, every human being deserves, right? At the same time, it's not realistic to say that that would ever happen because why would somebody want to be given only one way to live their life if there's a whole world out there, right? Well, somebody Nobody can go and say that I've learned and I've accepted that this is the holiest path and I get a lot of joy out of it and I'm okay by walking away from whatever it is that I can do uh, in the rest of the world, right? Think about the Amish. How many people go and do their room springa, which is you go and explore the world and then after a couple of years you say, you know what? I prefer to not be a part of the world and I prefer, but I think, I think that's a life that I want. And, and that choice is given to them, and then they end up there, and then that, that changes everything for them. Um, and so I guess the question is, how much do you think choice is the big uh, limiting factor here? So, so, so even on that point that you pointed out about the Amish, I spoke to Amish people, and it's not like that. It's just the way that the, the, the way media portrays Suppose it. that was actually people the situation. People are not given a real choice when you are shunned by your community and by your own family. It's basically tearing yourself a, a, a limb. It. It's literally like cutting off a limb. Sure. That's not a choice. I hear that. Right? There's so, but, a documentary about it. Yeah. Sure. Shane, you wanted to respond to that. Well... Because it's something that happens, so in the field of new religious movements, which studies often small religious groups, right, the media often represents it through members who left and were unhappy with the community, and it leads to a certain representation. So sociologists mention that at the end of the day, like if you only rely on people who've left the community, you get, it's, it's just normal, you get a biased sample. It doesn't mean that people are, are not saying the truth, but it's inherently biased, right? So you have to speak to people of different types. And you have, like, for example, now, from what was said, it sounds like it would be impossible to openly use a smartphone and be a member of Satmar, 
right? I mean, it sounds like the repercussions are massive. But just the other day in the teacher's lounge, there's a Satmar uh, guy from uh, Williamsburg. He has a smartphone. He's dressed a little more snazzy than the others. And he mentions, you know, he's trying to learn some math so that he can maybe go to college. Uh, he wants to catch up. He has some complaints about the the, the education. Uh, he, he says he, he did pretty good because he has a lot of sisters. They helped him with his English. So he wants to learn more. He's open about it. He doesn't think he's going to get marginalized. And when I ask people like that, every at first, I, every time someone opened up like this, I was like, oh, okay, they, they kind of want to leave the community if they can. But when I ask more questions, I realize, no, they're, they're, they love it. I mean, the people do a lot of charity work. People, I mean, there's a kind of, uh, of, of community strength that in my public community, uh, education, Quebecois milieu, like these, there's certain like care between members of the community. It's like, completely absent that in Satmar, like, wow, people feel this much joy. They help each other that much. There's also good things, right? Um, you have and, and you have people who live in the community who mention those things. Like if you look, there's a, uh, a review to Unorthodox, the book, right? Someone who left, she says, I left 32 years ago. Um, and the, the thing is, I read this book and I don't, I don't see any of the happiness. I don't see any of the happiness that's specific to the community. All I hear are the critiques. Now, for an ex-member, that's legitimate. But when you have people from outside the community who use that to represent the place, they think it's a kind of hell, right? That's how it's yeah. imagined. Well, it's for you, it hell. was. Okay. For then you, it was. But as an outsider, I kind of enjoy my place there. Uh, because you're an outsider. Because, because you're an outsider and you don't have children in this system. Can I make a short comment? The, 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 there's a professor, Moshe Krakowski, in, in New York, who wrote an article to defend the, the abusive Hasidic system. And in his article, he said, like you said, that you can't believe the ex-members because it's like an ex-wife. You can't believe, you can't trust them. Now, my answer to that is, first of all, we have today thousands of Hasidim who are in the system and they are writing on social media every day what a hell they are living in. They are in the system. They are not ex-members. I don't want to deny, I don't want to deny that there are many, many, many people. And I think that's the whole point of the original New York Times article is that there are many, many people that are disgruntled. That, that have serious issues that feel like they are going through lots of problems. And I, I agree with you, right? I, I think that it is a significant problem. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not here trying to make everything, you know, uh, say that there's nothing wrong going on in the community. I think that that is absolutely there. I'm usually, everybody knows on the podcast, right, David, that I'm the one that uh, puts my cards out there on the table. I think there are a lot of problems. I, <laughs> I think that um, the uh, community is trapping people. I think that it is, uh, whether through marriage, whether through cutting off family members, I th whether through a lack of education, there is many mechanisms that the Hasidic communities do. Uh, and that's why I believe in choice. And I believe in trying to figure out ways in which we can have choices have there. But I want to wrap it up and, and go back to the schools, because that's really the focus of where we're at here. Um, and if you can all, each of you answer, and really I want to hear, because I imagine that Yochanan and Shifra, you probably have different answers from each other, and Shane probably has a different answer as well. What if supposing the Hasidic world is not going away, that there are actually people that love being Hasidim and don't want to leave the community out of an active choice, they know what's going on in the world, what would be a good school system um, in the year 2022 that 
that balances the priorities of the Hasidic community with the ability to teach people, with the ability to have, um, you know, studies, with the ability to have skills that people can learn to take into the outside world and whatnot. Um, what does that look like? Does it look like two school systems? That's the way I think about it. We have a school system for the people that don't want to teach their kids anything, and then we have a school system where the kids can learn some Jewish, some secular studies, and then the one that's for nobody, you know, the government will deal with that, and we'll, we'll, it's another question. But maybe you have, I don't, I don't know what it looks like to say, what is the, the way forward? How do we fix this? Shifra, go ahead. So I, I don't think that it's on us to decide how to fix it. Uh, we can make suggestions, but it's not I a believe exactly. I'm asking for your suggestion. That's it. Okay, because I believe change is a very complicated thing. I mean, look at me. I was a very happy member of the community, really considered myself lucky to be born in Tosh, and it was a very, very slow change that happened as I, as I had my four children and as I started seeing things from under the rug that I became so dis, um, di- not just disappointed, but really disillusioned. So... It's, it's really something that happens in a very slow pace and we would love for it to happen faster. So for me personally, I am delighted with any positive change that happens in the Hasidic system, any way that children have more freedom, whether it's with a gym, with music, with art, with, with, with any way that children can breathe and with, 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 with uh, stopping corporal punishment, that is a must. And with more uh, um, um, accountability for sexual abuse, that is like something that the New York Times has not touched on, how, how much it goes on. There's a and lot. Not, There's not a lot that can hell. be done, you know? And not talking about hell to the children, about hellfire. Shane, what would you think? So in the U.S., there's, like, political issues that, that you know, that, that are coming out in the New York Times article, and I don't know how we're going to improve the situation there. I know for in Quebec, the 2017 law definitely added a push that now at least there's at least a minimum and i think the approach is going to so it's about two hours eight hours per week of secular studies in the mo, like communities like tosh and satmar it's very little right you, you there's a lot you like you can't cover that much but if and that's going to be very hard but if that can be pushed to three hours four hours per day right 12, 15 hours. Now we can have something to work with, right? I have no doubt that with if Satmar, Satmar is the most resistant, with Tush, one of the most resistant communities. If those eight hours, there's a genuine desire to make things better, then, you know, we have something to work with. We want to expand it and we need to get more, because they only hire Hasidic teachers now in in Satmar and they're very ill-equipped to teach the subjects, right? Which is a huge issue. So the hope is that there's more people from within the community who improve their skills so that they can create good teachers. If there's good teachers and there's a bit more time, 15 hours a week, let's hope, then I think we can kind of get get further in helping the children be equipped to learn chemistry if they want or become accountants, you know. Right now, people do these things. Like, there's some people with master's degrees, but they have to wait until their children are, like, old enough that they can go back to school, and it does change the life cycle. In a more, like, anthropological way, the way I interpret it, it's just there's a different approach to life cycle. You have children, you raise them, and then you can transition to having, like, a, a different type of career. 
Um, you got, you guys are, are in two very different places in the Hasidic community. Um, one as an, an administrator and, and almost a representative, and one, uh, but you're both, I'm sure, speaking to a lot of people within the Hasidic community, whether on the, you know, uh, Hasidic WhatsApp or within the teachers' rooms, as we say, uh, or wherever you're at. Um, do you find that the uh, New York Times translating this into Yiddish actually had an impact and that more people got to read it. And I'm also curious whether um, what people are saying, right, both in the uh, ex-Hasidic movement or the people that are happy to be within the community. Go ahead. So, of course, ahead, on, 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 the, on the forums of the um, Hasidic people, there's a lot of people who are happy. And, of course, there are also people who are fearing anti-Semitism and are... Uh, not happy about the whole thing about airing dirty laundry and all that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, I believe that in, uh, interpreting it in Yiddish is a very big step towards having a conversation because the most disempowered members of the community are the ones who don't know English and those are the people who have now more chance. I'm not saying that all have access to it because not everybody even has a chance to have any access to internet, right? But there are more of them who are able to at least read this article and understand what's going on, really. All right, Shane, you get the last word. Um, there's so that that that's an issue where I think the Lowen family has a better insight because in the school environment, uh, no one is going to just go and praise the article, right? And the people I work with are don't read the article. They mostly read. They, they mostly read mediated versions that sound polemic. They kind of, ex whether it's COVID, whether it's the New York Times, every time I hear about the New York Times, it's always like a Hasidic version of the New York Times that's completely misrepresenting the actual newspaper, right? Um, so I, I don't think they really, the people around me, they don't really get it. But one, one effect that's interesting is that before, they're arguing against Quebec, arguing against Quebec all the time. New York, the New York state, though, great for the Hasidim. Now, I think it creates a sense that both Quebec and New York are going to push for more secular education. And so some of them are also resigning themselves a bit more. So someone who's actually very feisty in some ways, uh, but he said like, okay, we have to learn French. And then a teacher says, oh, why do we have to learn French? It's, it's stupid. And then he says, no, no, what is it stupid? You're stupid. We have to learn French. We live here. We got to learn French. So we have to make it, you know, he doesn't know much French, but he wants his children to know better French. All right. So I see that there's some internal changes, right? But it's, they're, they're feisty people. That's for sure. And, uh, uh, I think it's 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 pushing things in the right direction, but I do have a concern when people outside the community use those types of articles and to represent it. There's a distortion that happens there. Like people when they, in Quebec, people who hear about illegal Jewish schools, they the the idea they have of the school really doesn't have much to do with the reality. Um, Excellent. All right. Well, I think it's a very. I think I think just the opposite. I think the New York Times gives a too positive uh, reflection and the reality is much worse than what the New York Times said. And I would give you an example. The New York Times wrote that all the Hasidim are taking care of each other and no one goes hungry. According, I'm 44 years old. I'm 44 years a Hasid. I have uh, hundreds of Hasidic friends till today and I never heard about that. I know many people are going hungry in the Hasidic system, including my wife and me and my children when we were Hasidic. 
I, I have personally contacted in, in New York a few people because I have a friend there who is literally hungry every day. She doesn't have her bread and there's nobody looking out for her. I have another friend who has grown up every single day, gone to school with an empty stomach. She had nothing to eat. Like, th this is not a real depiction of the community as a whole. Of course, there's a lot of helping each other. But to say that there's nobody going hungry, that is a bit of an overstatement. I, I think we're going to leave it at that. And uh, Yohanan, Shifra, Shane, thank you so much for joining us. And if there's uh, developments that you want to talk about, I would love to have you anytime. Uh, thank you for putting on Bonjour Chai. Thanks for having us. Thank you, everyone. So the holidays are upon us. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur pre-fast, break-fast, Sukkot meals, and then you get to Shemini Atzeret and Simcha Torah. There's a lot of meals ahead of us. And I thought that we would have a chance to uh, think about it, get a little more mindful about the food, and then just uh, maybe even get into the weeds a little bit about how to think about these meals. And so I brought on uh, Jake Cohen, who happens to be in Montreal for a cooking demo tonight. Uh, Jake is the author of Jew-ish, a wonderful cookbook. What's the subtitle of the cookbook there? I... Uh, reinvented recipes from a modern mensch. There you go, a modern mensch. And Jake is a modern mensch. Jake, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Hello. Why don't you start by just giving us a bit about your Jewish food journey? Yeah, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. And I think with that comes this upbringing that centers Jewish food, a specific snapshot of Jewish food, this like real New York deli, Ashkenazi, 100%, 100%. 100%. And I grew up in Queens, so there's also like, I don't know, in Farce tells this place, Knish Nash, that's, sure. that's all, all of what you would expect, these kosher pizza places slash falafel shops. Slash like, sushi. Slash sushi. Now, now, now everything has to have a sushi menu. But I, I really grew up with this Jewish idea of comfort food, yet that was really the only place I saw it. And it was in the background as I kind of made my way through culinary school, working in restaurants and media, in which these were never the dishes or the foods that I cooked, that I wrote about, that I got to really see outside of this kind of like deli prison. And mm -hmm. as I started to explore what my addition to the food world was and how I would talk about myself and my family and my upbringing and, and so much of what I consider those foods that bring joy. Uh, it was all Jewish food. And then I met my husband who, who's Mizrahi and it became this, this kind of joint education of, I had to show him everything about Ashkenazi food and he had to show me everything about the Persian and Iraqi dishes he grew up with. And it just became like, this is all I want to do is talk and eat and cook and, and explore Jewish food. And so you left fine dining and you're in this Jewish food world now. That's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're seeing. We're on this real precipice of, of Jewish food becoming more fine dining and not like white tablecloth Michelin star, which it shouldn't be. But why not? Because I don't know necessarily it can there there could be definitely one or two, but that's not what the core values of our food systems are. And you look at all these cultures sure. and sometimes it will translate well to fine dining and other times like perfect example is in New York, you start to see like Persian food. There's no world in which Persian food should be 
individually tweezed. plated and tweezed. It's all about abundance. And a lot of the, these dishes are about generosity and hospitality and having a big sprawling buffet of, of platters and, and bowls. And it just, it just doesn't feel right because you're not able to really express that level of hospitality. Sure. I, I, when I used to speak about Jewish food and I'd been asked to speak about Jewish food a lot in the past, uh, I remember one of the highlights that I always talk about is that Jewish food is slow. Is the, the Shabbat meal is the prime, the primal example of the slow food movement. Completely, It's a meal that is prepared over a long period of time that day um, that is then completely ready by the time you're ready to eat it and you sit and you enjoy it with friends over a long period of time and enjoy and talk and sing. And you know, if that, that those are the hallmarks of the slow food movement where they were yeah. doing all this stuff from scratch and preparing and showing you there's the opposite of fast food. And that's, that's a Shabbos meal. And, and I think that the other part of that, which is funny because it's a lot of it's rooted in, in this like patriarchal society. But I talked to my mother-in-law a lot about her growing up in Iran and, and the, her parents growing up in Iraq. And so many of these dishes are so long and labor intensive because these were these, opportunities for communal gathering in which the women would spend time together in the kitchen rolling kubba or, or going through the rice and this was their time to spend together mm-hmm. separate from the men the men weren't allowed sure. i'm the one that does the cooking yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Know that. anyways um yeah and so the one thing that that hit me was i was going through your book is uh it's really one of the few books that is trying to do this Ashkafardi fusion cuisine, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Blend, like smashing the two together and not just saying we're doing some gefilte fish upscale like gefilteria and then we're doing some, you know, koba that's going to be interesting. Like you're really trying to mash the two cultures together. Yeah, I think there there's a time and a place for for everything and it's just what feels organic and what makes the most sense to you and your family. I always say, especially with Jewish food, authenticity can only really span as far as one family, because mm-hmm. the way that your grandmother makes matzo balls versus mine or her brisket or her gefilte fish, everyone has their unique definitions. And that is what's authentic to you. And as people move and they marry, all of that affects that kind of culinary canon and, and sure. it blends it together. And this is just my unique snapshot of my perspective of Jewish food. And it might look different than yours, might look similar. But that's kind of the, the beauty is, is you can be a, a voyeur in the Jewish food world. And I think the most important part is like, we could still be the same culture, celebrate the same rituals, even if the menus are completely different. Yeah. So um, looking at these menus, right? I, uh, I think I count, if you count every Shabbos and every meal between the first night of Rosh Hashanah and the last meal of Simchat Torah, and you count all the lunches and all the Shabbases <laughs> and the pre-fast and the break-fast, you're looking at close to 20 meals, right, that yeah. are supposed to be, in theory, big and in a, like, you know, expansive, yeah. prepared, beautiful. Um, it's got to be daunting. It is. I'm, <laughs> I, I Literally yesterday, I got, like, three texts, one after the other, of different friends or family friends being like, what are your breakfast plans? And... As in they want to invite you or they no, want you no, no, to cook no, no, no. for them? They want to, they want to be invited <laughs> to mine. Um, and it, it's funny because I think there is this, I, I mean, it's a very like Seinfeld, Larry David-esque mentality, but there is this like martyrdom when it comes to entertaining in which people think it's, it's going to be this like torturous process and really just requires a little bit of intention and headspace and planning. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I love the challenge. I love 
the ability to just welcome and open your doors. And these are rituals and holidays that are so important for community, so symbolic in terms of, of, of what we're talking about. We're celebrating the new year. We're putting intention towards an entire 12 months ahead. We are reflecting on the year behind and, and looking to make amends and repent. These are all things that whether you were super religious or not are, are incredible ways that you should be gathering with those you love and care about. So feeding them is just, uh, you gotta, gotta have something on the table. Yeah, so the rabbis have lists of sins and you have lists of tasks. Exactly. And exactly. And so, um, walk us through that. So suppose, and I've done this already, so, you know, I'm not going to play, plead total ignorance. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've worked back at the house in kitchens. I've cooked. Yeah. I've had my chef, Laura Frankel. I remember the first time I was going to host Pesel Seders and she asked me to work the two or three days leading up to Passover, right? So that they needed uh, somebody to cook and to be a mashkiach and all this stuff. I said, great, but you're going to help me think about how to do all this whole like Pesach like in a, in a way. And she sat me down and she told me about lists and lists should have lists to themselves, like their sub lists and all this. So I'm, I'm not that person. So walk me through, let's say I have 18 meals that I'm going to have. Um, how do I like break this down so that I'm not so daunting? So I don't find it so daunting. How do I repurpose things? How do I, yeah. um, you know, mix it up? What are your bits? So the first is, is that everyone's definition of, you're, you you need to make a first list of like, what are all of the items? How many mains, sides, protein, veg, that. But the real thing that's important is, what does my kitchen look like? How many burners do I have in my stove? How many racks do I have in my oven? That's the first thing that I always look at because that helps define what I'm doing. I know when I'm prepping, and this could be days in advance, hours in advance, whatever I'm doing, I need to know that when it comes time that everyone is here, I have everything divided between maximum three sheet trays for my oven, maximum four pots or pans for my stove. Mm-hmm. And then nothing else, uh, I, I'm not going to do something where it's like, all right, well then I need to pull that out and then reheat something else. And it's like, no, you have a limited space of how you can really execute a meal and I want to have everything pretty much done. There's never yeah. a moment in which I'm planning a meal like, all right, I'm going to make something that has to be a la minute. Yeah, no. Crazy. I mean, I'm going one step further and I'm saying to myself, how many of my sides can I serve at room temp or cold? That, that's a completely valid, completely. I mean, I've become a big that believer. There. Yeah. And that's when you, you get to, to pick a theme. So great, we're gonna go. We're gonna go real Mizrahi today, and we're gonna have the we're gonna fill everyone up so much with mezes that like we can go really like just a couple of big heavy hitter hot things and and call it a day. Mm-hmm. So there's that in terms of of I, I think about my rosh and and again we're creatures of habit. So I'll never forget my husband's first year coming to to Passover and then Rosh Hashanah and you have these two dinners back to back and it's the, the same menu. It's it's well, that was gonna be my next tip. Don't invite the same people to the night one correct. and night two. But the thing is is they want to and they want and like we love we love you to the same thing two days in a row. It's delicious. Um but that being said, it it comes with this concept of always a soup. So I have the soup done and that could be that should be done. So many of the, the beautiful aspects of Jewish food is that they're meant to be made in advance or cooked low mm-hmm. and slow. And the reason behind that is it tastes better. Everyone's always daunted by a brisket or braising a brisket. And and my my answer is always there's no world in which you should be cooking your brisket the same day you're serving it. 
No, it actually tastes better. It tastes better. Like, like knock Three it out days, on. Two days in the fridge. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I split it up. I always say, great. First day, you're going to braise it. Let it cool. Pop in the fridge. Next day, you're going to slice it because it's cold and it'll be mm-hmm. super easy. And then you just got to throw it on the stove mm-hmm. and let it heat up over right. low heat for yep. a couple hours. And same thing with like all my vegetables. I have them all roasted or blanched, ready to go. And then I like, you're using so many sheet pans roasting all of them. And as soon as they're cooked, you get to consolidate them all on one pan mm-hmm. so that you could just pop that in and keep it on warm. Same thing with like your starches. So if you're doing, you're not going to be making like fresh pasta for any of these meals. And that's okay. That's okay. There, there are, there, there's just. Who's a, expecting pasta at a, at a Rosh Hashanah meal? But oh, well, I will tell you, here's my, my, the one thing that I do love because we're talking about repurposing. One of my favorite things to do is in a moment where you're doing a, um, and again, this is also because a New Yorker and, a, and New York Jews are like, I would say separate from Jewish food. The number one food we grow up on is Italian American food. So my big thing is, is when you have your leftover brisket and it's mainly sauce and there's just like little shreds of, of brisket, I just cook some pasta and throw it all together. And mm-hmm. like brisket pasta has become like, the family favorite. Honestly, they like it sometimes more than the brisket itself. Yeah, that's uh, brisket. Okay, I like. Yeah, so that's. I mean, repurposing is huge. I'm repurposing a big fan is of that. huge. Um, you know, taking a sauce from something or moving it on, and uh, like taking the, the dinner from the night before. So, so that becomes the yeah, completely. For sure. It's the Anthony Bourdain uh, Rainbow Room uh, brunch yes, yes, sort yes, of yes. like nightmare that uh, never want to eat anywhere that uh, is repurposing stuff from the night before. Exactly, exactly. Buffet. Yeah. So uh, and and we should champion that and say, yay, this is what we're doing, and uh, it's great. Um, do you are are you do you work in the world of the uh, the, the the very symbols of Rosh Hashanah foods? Yes, I, I think that's the, one of my favorite aspects of Judaism is symbolism. Okay, that, and I think the intention behind it is is everything. So I try to have as much like again pan diaspora representation of like lots of apples and honey, but also lots of dates and dates. You, you do a brie, right? So I do a baked brie. Um, uh, that one's actually become really popular for breakfast too, just because you can like have it out and, and breakfast is so, so nosh heavy of bagel and locks. And it's a lot of like snacking foods that you're, you're just want, you want large quantities as fast as possible, but not necessarily, I don't, we don't serve any hot food at breakfast. Yeah, why would you? It's yeah, like there's it's no. It's rush. a. It should be a full dairy meal. It should just be like in your face, like schmear. Except for the bakery. Except for the well, the ba- the bakery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Uh, last year, I did this. I took an easy whipper and I mm-hmm. infused apple slices with honey, so that they were like in the honey. That's like a little that. modernist, like amazing fun on that. Um, Great. Uh, pomegranates. You use those? Yes, lots of it. Lots of pomegranate molasses. I do. Um, I, my family loves, I do this. Um, we talked about it before the pomegranate, um, chicken wings. Yep. And that's just become such a fun party app that has a little mm-hmm. nod to it. And then you have to just talk about it. It's all about the, the verbiage. Same thing with Seder. We go around and we talk about every single, um, item of the Seder plate and what mm-hmm. it's representing. And I do this thing in the book in which I love to do these like individual Seder plates where each, Thing from the Seder plate is represented by an actual food you can eat because so that's yeah that that's what what I'm doing what you want to do with any Jewish holiday there, there's a reason we don't just do it because we do it we do it because someone made some parallel to Torah that's actually quite 
Sweet. Yeah. And they're all in the, the Mahsara. They have these uh-huh. like lists of stuff. So I'm going to do that, but I'm going to tell you first, apropos of Pesach, because I did this one yeah. one year and it took off and people loved it. And now I like the kids insist that I make it. Um, I took everything on the Seder plate and I turned it into one dish. Love. I turned it into a salad with romaine and um, some for the horse, for the, for the, for the maror. And I put in celery and I put in uh, parsley and I did uh, chopped egg. I did, um, instead of the shank, I did ground. I took little lamb and I made little to tiny meatballs for like mm. croutons. Yum. And then a harosa dressing. I like, love on that. Top of that. I love that. And it was like the whole elements of all the Seder, like in one, in one dish. But I want to, I want to throw... Uh, all these things that are like popping off my head in yeah. terms of the symbolism and see what you're going to make with them. Not doesn't have to all be in one, yeah. right? but let's, um, cause so many of them, like people think about the sweet ones, but um, my mom was always insistent on serving a fish head or a Correct. sheep's head um, for Roshana to be that we should be the head and not the tail. Um, what are you going to do something interesting with the head? So funny enough is like, I've gotten, and I don't mean Swedish fish heads that people, you cut know, off no, <laughs> I actually start seeing this as, as other things where I, I did it one year with heads of cabbage okay and instead it's just like you use a full head of cabbage and still it was like a sweet and sour braised cabbage with that intention of like head of the year Uh, that being said head cheese did not make head cheese if you would like that god aloeac which is like my mother loves to say it's like it's arabic for for go with god um but yeah i think and for example a lot of the his Persian aunts will make ashereshte, uh, which is this uh, Persian noodle soup, because very much similar to uh, Chinese New Year and a lot of Asian cultures, you long noodles for longevity. Oh, interesting. Beets? Beets. Um, People don't. I make beet salads all the time. Yeah. People don't eat them. Help it's, me out here. Half, half of the family loves it, including myself. Half don't. Um, I'll give you a little I'll give you a little sneak peek. I have In my next book, I do this, this dish that is uh, a play on one of my mother-in-law's favorite snacks growing up, very common thing in, in Iran is they would just boil beets and turnips together and then snack on them, which is like salt and olive oil. So I turned them into a caprese where you boil them together and then chill them, thinly slice them and drizzle with olive oil, chopped olives, scallions. And I've gotten really into just into that, but you're not going to convert everyone. You're it's one of those know. things, just like lean into the you ones to, you love. You have to call them Beats by Drake. Beats by Drake. No, Beats, Beats sorry, by Drake. three, two, one. You have to call them Beats by Jake. Beats by Jake, love. And love. then uh, turn that into your, that, that, call that the dish. Amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, um, fenugreek. It always shows up in the art scroll. Yeah. As a, as a, kitchen person i know what it is you know what it is a lot of people don't where do we get it and why would i use it and how do i turn it into something interesting on rosh hashanah it's a seasoning very common in a lot of middle eastern cultures a lot of uh, indian cultures it really came to the middle east through the spice trade with india and you'll see them in different ways because uh, some cultures a lot of indian food mainly focuses on the seeds mm-hmm. and a lot of middle, middle eastern uh, culture mainly focuses on the dried leaves and the leaves themselves are super fragrant and some people think they're a little musky but i think it smells just like maple syrup which i really love and i think that that plays with the the sweetness um most commonly i use it in a uh, a persian stew called um gorma sabzi which is with uh beef and dried kidney beans and lots of chopped herbs and that's like a big dish for for spring because like herbs spring green symbolism um but yeah, I think that it's it's a really wonderful dish and anything that is herbaceous, any type of stew that you're really looking to like elevate with a bit of like floral notes. I love adding a fanagreek. 
Excellent. Uh, one last one then. And uh, I remember being given as a child a spoonful of sesame seeds with like sugar mixed in as like that you should be as like, you know, the same way that the pomegranate has a lot of seeds yeah, and you yeah, should yeah. Have increase all your things. Um, short of tahina, right? What are you going to do with sesame seeds that will feature it heavily and not just as a sprinkling on something? Yeah. You can have fun with it. I've been very into um, daka. I think that that is, it's an Egyptian spice and nut blend that, I always do very heavy on sesame and it's typically with any combination of hazelnuts, pistachios, walnuts, almonds, um, as well as tons of like coriander and black pepper. And it becomes this, this coarse crumble that you would often like rip bread, dip in oil and then dip into this mixture. Uh, I've gotten very into just um, tossing it, uh, sprinkling it on top of all my roasted vegetables. So for example, what I would do is I'd roast a bunch of sweet potatoes, then drizzle them with Ceylon and then sprinkle the ducka right on top and it sticks to them. And then you just have this like beautiful texture of anything that's roasted and it's soft with a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of crunch from the, the seeds and the nuts. And that's become like my favorite. Beautiful. Jake, when's the new book uh, going to be out? Two years, three years? One year. No, One luckily year. it'll be out a year from a year from now. We'll be out everywhere. I cannot wait to have you back on to talk more about uh, Jewish food. Jake Cohen, thanks for coming on. Bonjour. Hi. My pleasure. And now it's that time in our show for our Nachas of the Week, that thing that makes us feel good and uh, Jewish, Canadian-ish. Um, David, what's your Nachas this week? Avi, you know, you never get to go first. And I feel I, feel I want to give you this opportunity to go first for our Nachas right now. I want to hear from you. <laughs> okay. My Nachas this week will go out to the congregation Shara Shemayim, who this weekend will be celebrating their centennial anniversary in their current sanctuary. They're rededicating it this coming Saturday night. It is the 100th anniversary of their um, building in Westmount in Quebec here, and uh, they are having a beautiful ceremony where they will be recreating the first service that they had. Uh, I would like to wish them a mazel tov. Uh, I don't usually do a lot of log rolling. Sometimes I do, I guess. Um, but this one is one of those, uh, a shout out to the Shar Shemayim for a hundred years. Uh, not many shuls, not many institutions get to do that. Um, and this one is way older than that, but it's a hundred years in this building. And that enough is a, is a remarkable moment. David, back to you. What is your nachas? Well, I'm sure people have heard the news that Shira Haas is going to star as Sabra, the Israeli superhero in the next Captain Marvel movie coming up in, I think, 2024? Yeah, I I do not follow the uh, the... What is it? The MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, aka the Tanakh go. of superheroes. It is. It is like the contemporary Torah Tanakh. Uh, so it's. I think it'll be really cool to see uh, an Israeli superhero. I mean, there's some people that are very upset all over the Twitter sphere that there is now an Israeli superhero joining the MCU or the MC universe. Um, I'm interested. I. I think it. It might be a good. Th- will it be a good thing for the Jews? I think it'll be really interesting to see her perform as Sabra. What do you think her her superpower is going to be? <laughs> is that discussed? Has that been announced? Well, there have been made some jokes all over uh, the interwebs, sort of saying, is is her superpower uh, arresting and and hurting Palestinian children? Ooh. That was the one joke I was that I going, heard I was all going over. a lot. A lot lower than that one. I was going for like, <laughs> does she go eh, at, su- at like hypersonic like frequencies and like disables you like that? Eh, yes. You go to, or does she like shoot out hummus, right? This like, su- I don't know, like 
what 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 else have you she's my mind is drawing a blank right now really come on i mean there's got to what what was Rayleigh's? come on she she has a she has a startup she she moves to new york city and starts she, a startup <laughs> no that's her cover story but what's the superpower she 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 catches you in line at the airport and asks you question about your bar mitzvah where you had it and what high school you went to oh she's the interrogator she's the interrogator oh, okay. i like that <laughs> Okay, well, Shirahas, if you're listening to this, which you're probably not, come on our show. Tell us about what you think the superhero should be. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 17th, Shabbat Parashat Kitavo. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer of CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you could share Bonjour Chai with a friend. It really helps to get the word out. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm David Sklar. 